Okay. Well, I'm going to offer a word of prayer, and then we're going to get right in to our final presentation on the book of Daniel for our seminar here this week. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for bringing us through all of these sessions that we've had and for the things that we've learned. And as we see just how soon your coming is, I pray that we would get our lives in order and that we would be ready for your soon coming. And as we discuss the last part of Daniel 11 and chapter 12, may it help us in our walk with you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our presentation for our last session is entitled, When Michael Stands Up. And that, of course, is referring to Michael standing up in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now, I'm just going to give a brief rundown of what we saw in the last session. What we saw in the last session is that there was a great controversy struggle between Christ and Satan to get the information of Daniel 11 to Daniel as Daniel fasted and prayed for three full weeks. Once Michael came, the conflict was decided and Gabriel could then reveal to Daniel the information that we've been looking at. We've gone down through history and we saw that there was the Medo-Persian kingdom and then Greece and the division of Greece into four. And then the king of the north and the king of the south developed out of that division of Greece with a northern and southern division. And then eventually pagan Rome replaced Greece as the king of the north, or the northern division of Greece as the king of the north, and then papal Rome eventually replaced pagan Rome as the king of the north, and verses 31 through 40 describe the 1290 years, beginning in verse 31, of papal supremacy, and I didn't mention this in my presentation, but now would probably be the time to do so. Someone already came up and asked me in the break about the 1290 and the 1335. Our reference point for the beginning point of those prophecies is Daniel 11:31, where it talks about arms standing on his part, the daily being taken away, and making the placing the abomination that maketh desolate. In Daniel 12:11 and 12, it refers back to Daniel 11:31 and says that is your reference point for the beginning of the 1290 and the 1335. That takes us 1290 takes us 508 to 1798 and 1335 takes us 508 to 1843. You know, I've heard someone even say that, well, they can't believe that the climax of Daniel 12 would be talking about Clovis in 508. Well, that would be like saying the climax of Daniel 814 was talking about the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 BC. So don't let people confuse you. And Ellen White makes it clear that there's no more time prophecy after 1844. So we come down to verse... 40, which we did, we saw Papal Rome as the king of the north, beginning in verse 31. Then we see Papal Rome continues as the king of the north. It receives the deadly wound in the first half of verse 40. And then we saw the comeback that it made in the last half of verse 40 by bringing down the communist Soviet Union through the alliance of Ronald Reagan and the Pope, Pope John Paul II. And so as I said in our last presentation, I believe that we really are living on the edge of eternity. And I'm going to go through these quotes briefly again, where Ellen White says in volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 11, that great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. And I believe that we are going to be talking about the final movements of Earth's history in our presentation this morning right now. And then the very same chapter, page 14, she says the prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon the scenes, spoken, scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. And in her day, the last half of verse 40 had not taken place. 
in our day it has. So we're living closer to the fulfillment of Daniel 11 than even she was in her day. And then here's the quote that we used last time where she talks about history will be repeated from this prophecy. How scenes similar to verses 31 through 36, which is the papal supremacy, will take place. And so here's our roadmap for this final presentation. History repeats itself. Arms stood on the part of the king of the north in Daniel 11:31. We saw how military force of state through the United States and the alliance of Reagan and John Paul fulfilled this history repeating itself. We will then see that a church-state union will be formed again, the abomination of desolation, which is the national Sunday law at the end of time. Then we will see persecution of the saints, just as we did in verses 31 to 36 of chapter 11. And then King of the North comes to its final end, just as it received the deadly wound at the end of the passage she quoted. So, where are we now? We ended at the end of verse 40, and now we're going to get into some areas that people have interest in studying. Things like the glorious land the glorious holy mountain, and so forth in the last days. So let's look at Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 41. This is referring to the king of the north. It says, He shall enter in also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. And notice the word countries is supplied, so it's better read, many shall be overthrown. So the king of the north, sometime after the time of the end began in 1798, sometime after it makes the comeback against the king of the south, the king of the north also enters into the glorious land. So the question is, what is, sorry, what is the glorious land? Now, the king of the south, which this I believe helps us to understand what the glorious land is. The king of the south in verse 40, as we saw in our last presentation, was France, which is described in Revelation chapter 11 verse 8 as spiritual Egypt. So in verse 40, the king of the south is spiritual Egypt. So if the king of the south is spiritual Egypt, it would make sense to me that the glorious land would also represent a spiritual entity at the end of time. Because in Daniel eleven sixteen, what was the glorious land? Israel. Yeah, it was Israel or Judea. That was the glorious land that Rome entered into in 63 BC. Here at the end of time, the king of the north, now as papal Rome, as spiritual Rome, once again enters into the glorious land. And the way I explain the glorious land is I believe it's better understood if you also know what the glorious holy mountain is. The glorious holy mountain is seen in Daniel 11.45 when the king of the north plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now the question is, what is the glorious holy mountain? If you look throughout scripture, the glorious holy mountain, you can see Psalms chapter 48 Verses 1 and 2 gives us a description, and I will read this passage. Psalms chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So I believe the glorious holy mountain is representative of spiritual Mount Zion. Mount Zion was a mountain, or is still, a literal mountain on the north side of the city of Jerusalem. And that is a picture of literal Mount Zion on the north side of Jerusalem. Now, when you look at a few other verses, Psalms 2, verse 6 describes Mount Zion as God's holy hill. And Joel chapter 2, verse 32, to me, gives some very helpful evidence for what the glorious holy mountain is symbolic of. 
In Joel 2.31, it talks about the dark day in May 1917-80, just before the great and terrible day of the Lord. But then notice verse 32, it says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Notice this, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now get this. The glorious holy mountain we saw from Psalms 48 is spiritual Mount Zion. And we know that Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. Here in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it talks about how deliverance is in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Well, that's basically being redundant because Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? And so Scripture is saying that spiritual Mount Zion or spiritual Jerusalem are the same thing and the, a, synonym, a synonym is used again at the end of verse 32 when it says, as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So here's what I believe. I believe that the glorious holy mountain represents spiritual Mount Zion which is synonymous with spiritual Jerusalem, which is synonymous with God's end-time remnant. Now, who is the remnant? Revelation 12, 17 makes it clear they keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which we know from Revelation 19, 10 is the spirit of prophecy. So the spiritual remnant at the end of time must be the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, here's another point of illustration that I want to use. We're in Baltimore, Maryland right now, and so you want to ask yourself the question, are the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain the same thing? The glorious, holy, or the glorious land represents spiritual Israel, I believe, and the glorious holy mountain, I believe, represents the remnant. Now, here's the illustration. Are the United States and Baltimore, Maryland the same thing? No. Not exactly. Now, here, here's how I would describe this. If, I, if I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, am I in the United States of America? Yes. Absolutely. If I'm in Utah, am I in Baltimore, Maryland? No, no but I'm still in the United States, right? So can you be in the glorious land but not in the glorious holy mountain? Yes. yes. But if you're in the glorious holy mountain, are you in the glorious land? Yes. yes, you are. So this helps me to understand what the glorious land and the glorious holy mountain are, spiritually speaking, at the end of time. I believe that the glorious holy mountain represents the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, which is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Once you understand that the glorious holy mountain represents God's remnant church, then the glorious land, I've heard some people say, is the Seventh-day Adventist church. I, I don't think that's accurate. And some people say it's the United States of America, and that's clearly problematic because if the glorious holy mountain represents the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, then how could the glorious land be one country in the world? That makes no sense at all. So some people teach that the glorious land is the United States of America, and again, it's not a salvational issue, but that's just what I believe. And I believe it makes sense if you follow correct principles of, of interpretation here. So if the glorious holy mountain is the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy, I believe that the glorious land represents worldwide Protestant Christianity that is separate from papal Rome, and this would include the Seventh-day Adventist church, but the Seventh-day Adventist church is the portion of the glorious land within the glorious holy mountain known as the remnant. So, notice what happens when the king of the north, papal Rome, enters into the glorious land. It says in verse 41, <clears throat> He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many shall be overthrown. And again, the word countries is supplied. So here it says, many shall be overthrown. Now, who are the many that are overthrown? I believe that there are many people in the other churches today who are living up to the light that they know. But when the last crisis comes, 
and the King of the North enters into worldwide Protestant Christianity, many of these people will be overthrown. And I also believe that some Seventh-day Adventists are going to be overthrown at this time as well. Notice what Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light, and when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy popular side. Men of talent and pleasing address, who once rejoiced in the truth, employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. Do you notice what leads to Seventh-day Adventists being overthrown? Those who have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. So let me tell you something here. If your pastor is teaching you that sanctification is not part of salvation, you better watch out. Amen. Because that is setting you up to receive the mark of the beast. Amen. Because the Sabbath is the sign of sanctification as the seal of God. And Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 283, in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So you can go to church on Sabbath and being, being living an unsanctified life, and when the test comes, you're going to choose the easy popular side because you're going to view matters in nearly the same light as the rest of the world. Sanctification is part of salvation, and if we are not being sanctified through the message of righteousness by faith, we are being prepared to be deceived by the last great crisis. Amen. So many will be overthrown as papal Rome enters into the glorious land, and that's why you cannot separate justification and sanctification in the salvation process. They go together hand in hand. You can't be saved if you're not sanctified, or and you can't be saved if you're not justified. <clears throat> so, the king of the north enters into the glorious land. So what's happening here? Papal Rome is entering into the Christian world, and once again, we see history being repeated. So just as arm stood on the part of the king of the north in Daniel chapter 11, 31, in verse 40, we saw arms standing on the part of the King of the North with the United States and Reagan. Now we see the King of the North entering into the glorious land, and just as the abomination of desolation occurred, and as that history is going to be repeated, we see it being repeated here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Sunday Law is going to happen during the Obama administration, but this picture serves its purpose because a day is coming when a Sunday law will come and it will start here in Protestant America, but it will be worldwide in its scope. Notice what Ellen White says. As America, the land of religious liberty, shall unite with the papacy in forcing the conscience and compelling men to honor the false Sabbath, the people of every country on the globe will be compelled to follow her example. So notice, yes, America, the land of religious liberty, forms a key part of the glorious land as Protestant America, but notice every country is involved. This is a worldwide component. And... This is the famous quote that we know. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost, not the only ones, but will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hands with the Roman power and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. So here's what I believe. When the king of the north enters into the glorious land. That will be the beginning of the setting up of the National Sunday Law. So get this, where are we in Daniel 11? We just saw the fulfillment at the end of verse 40. So the very next thing to take place is the National Sunday Law. And that shows us just how close we are to the end of time. Now again though, 
You look at Revelation chapter 7, and the four angels are holding the four winds until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. All that tells me is that God looked down on this earth and he said, you know, my people are closer to being ready during the 1980s. So another part of that prophecy was fulfilled. And now we're one step closer to the winds being unleashed. But they still have not been unleashed yet because God's people are not yet sealed. And we have not yet seen the Sunday law take place. Now, when the Sunday law comes, it actually comes in four stages. So, sometimes people don't necessarily think about how the Sunday law will develop. It's not going to be all of a sudden we wake up one morning and we are told, if you don't go to church on Sunday the Sabbath, we're going to kill you. That's not how it's going to develop. The way it develops is it starts off with a call to refrain from working on Sunday. And Ellen White tells us that this is the time to go out and do the medical missionary work, to do Bible studies and to start pointing people, hey, this is where we are in Earth's history. So that's the beginning phase. But it doesn't stay there. Then, as you can see from the references, then it progresses to you must honor Sunday, but you can still worship on Sabbath. So they'll tell you, okay, we're going to protect your seventh-day Sabbath. You can still worship on that day, but you need to worship on Sunday also. And now the test is going to start to, to really show who's on the Lord's side. And I believe that in these first two stages is the beginning of the King of the North entering into the glorious land. It progresses, though, where they tell you, you cannot worship on Sabbath, only on Sunday, and if you do worship on Sabbath, we're going to fine you or even put you in prison. And then it finally culminates with a death penalty to those who worship Sabbath and disregard Sunday. And that, I believe, culminates in Daniel 11.45 with the planting of the tabernacle and the palace. So there's a progression of the development of the Sunday law from verses 41 to 45. So when Ellen White says great changes are soon to take place in this world and the final movements will be rapid ones, it's not going to take a hundred years to, be, to get from the beginning of the implementation of the Sunday law to the final death decree. Once the Sunday law comes, it's going it's to go very fast. We don't know how long, and again, don't listen to people who reapply the 1260, 1290, and 1335 who think they have it all figured out from the beginning of the Sunday law to the close of probation. And that's a bunch of, it's, it's reinterpretation of scripture and it's disregard of the spirit of prophecy. And I choose to stand on the side of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Amen. No more prophetic time after 1844. Amen. So we don't know how long from the beginning point of the Sunday law till the death decree. But what we do know is that the final movements will be rapid ones. It's not going to take a lot of time. And so now we see history repeating. Now we see the abomination of desolation when the Sunday law takes place. The abomination of desolation sets itself in motion, culminating ultimately in verse 45. Now, I'm going to spend a few moments talking about some of the other elements that people study in verses 41, 42, 43, beginning with Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now we know the Edomites were the children of Esau, right? And Moab and Ammon, they were the two sons that Lot had with his two daughters after he fled Sodom. So these people in ancient times were relatives of God's people. The Edomites were cousins, and the Moabites and Ammonites were also distant relatives. So they were related. And if you look at the map, Edom is due south of Judah. Moab is to the east of Judah. And Ammon is to the northeast. So they were very close. Now, as we've seen, the king of the south was spiritual Egypt, known as France. The glorious land is God's worldwide Protestant Christian church. The glorious holy mountain is the remnant church. So the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites must represent a spiritual group of people as well. Now, when you look at scripture, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, describe the Edomites. 
the Mo and the Moabites, specifically the Edomites. And if you look, the Edomites are referred to as the heathen. But God says, they are the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord. So God is saying, yeah, these people may be heathen, but they're still called by my name. And it's interesting, in Acts chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, at the Jerusalem council, the, the apostles actually quote this passage from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and it's found in verses 16 and 17 of Acts chapter 15. And they substitute the word Gentiles for the word heathen. So I believe Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites are spiritual Gentiles. They are outside of God's church. And what's fascinating is when you get to Isaiah chapter 11, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about a very special movement that God raises up at the end of time. Starting in verse 11, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant. That's God's second advent movement that is recovered at the end of time. And then, as you continue on down, it talks about how this remnant would be raised up through an ensign. That's actually in verse 10, which is the seventh day Sabbath that God uses to raise up this remnant people. And notice in verse 14, as the remnant is raised up at the end of time, it says... In the last half of verse 14 of Isaiah 11, it says, They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. So we're talking about a spiritual group of people that the remnant at the end of time recover from the world. And when you look at our message at the last day, there is a message to give to Babylon where God says, Come out of her, my people. Because these are the people that are called by God's name. And we are calling them out of Babylon into the remnant through the message of the Sabbath. And so as the Sunday law crisis starts to heat up, Seventh-day Adventists recognize the warning signs. They start to give the three angels' messages with greater power. And as papal Rome enters into the glorious land of worldwide Christianity, God uses his remnant to call spiritual Edom, Moab, and Ammon, or people in Babylon, out of Babylon into his remnant church. Amen. And God has called us to give that message. Now, some people say Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites are Islam. I don't see how you could come to that conclusion on the basis of the verses we just read. These are spiritual Gentiles. Certainly, they could be part of that group, but they're not only that. Continuing on, then when we come to verse 42 of Daniel chapter 11 it says he shall stretch his forth he shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape now and then in verse 30, 43 it says he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at a step so here we have Egypt Libya and Ethiopia and here's a map of modern day Egypt Libya and Ethiopia and it's not much different than Daniel's day. It's slightly different, but similar. Now, what was Egypt in the book of Daniel 11? It was the king of the south, right? So we're talking about the spiritual king of the south here now, because you may be wondering, okay, well, that's interesting that the communist Soviet Union fell and Eastern Europe fell, but what about the other communist nations that represent, that have atheistic principles? Most importantly, what about China? And then there's Cuba, Laos, North Korea, and Vietnam. What are going to happen to those countries? I believe as the final crisis hits, as the Sunday law starts to hit the world, these countries are going to fall like flies. China, North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Laos, those countries are going to come down real fast, especially as Satan works his miracle-working, deceiving power. There's not going to be an atheist left in this world. You see miracles, fire coming down from heaven in the sight of men. There's not going to be an atheist left in this world. 
<laughs> like they say, there's no atheists in foxholes. So when this final crisis heats up, I believe that the remaining communist nations are going to come down. The land of Egypt, that would be the remaining communist nations. And it says he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. This is interesting how history repeats itself because when Caesar Augustus defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the final battle between the king of the north and the king of the south, that was the first time that finally the king of the north gained access to the riches of the Ptolemaic dynasty. And at the end of time, the king of the north is going to gain access to the riches of this world. Now there could be, and I'm not, I'm still studying this out, but it is possible that this is the point of progression where it talks about Revelation 13 where it says no man can buy or sell. If he has power over the treasures of gold and silver, that could mean that you can't buy or sell because he has power over money. So that may represent that element. And then it says the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at a steps. And again, as you look to history, when the king of the south, Egypt, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, were defeated by Rome in 31 BC, Libya was the last line of defense for Mark Antony's soldiers. So I believe that Libya and Ethiopia may represent nations that have sort of formed a last line of defense for the communist nations of this world. And again, this is where I'm still studying, so I'm not being dogmatic, but this is where I believe this could represent the Islamic nations and nations like Iran, which isn't necessarily Islamic, but some of those nations that provided support to communism through the years and were major allies with each other in supplying each other with arms and so forth. Again, I'm not dogmatic about that, but I believe that may represent the fall of Islam as the Sunday Law crisis heats up. <clears throat> now, what happens next? Notice verse 44, it says, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So what are the tidings out of the east and out of the north? This is the loud cry message of Revelation 18. It's also the sealing message. It's describing the same thing. That message in Revelation 7 that ascends from the east with the seal of the living God, which is the Sabbath message. As the Sunday law crisis heats up, guess what else gains force? The third angel's message and the loud cry. So papal Rome is trying to gain control of the world through legislation of Sunday. And at the same time, God's people are giving the message known as, as the tidings out of the east and north, which is the loud cry. And I think we should read this message in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And here the Bible says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. You know, I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. And I want to be part of that. Amen. You know, my goal in life is not to make as much money as I can as a doctor and to be prestigious and famous and whatever. My goal is to be used by God to be part of the loud cry message that lightens the earth with God's glory. And that should be the goal of every Seventh-day Adventist. And notice what this message says. He cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Verse 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Is that a nice message or a mean message? 
You know, that's the most loving message God could ever give to this world. And you know, some Seventh-day Adventists are ashamed of that message. We should never be ashamed of the message that God has given us to call people out of Babylon into the remnant. Why are we ashamed? People now start saying, like, we need to stop sheep stealing. You know, we all believe in Jesus. As long as they're a Christian, just let them be. No, we have a message to warn people that if they stay where they are, they're going to receive the mark of the beast and they'll receive the outpouring of the seven last plagues. And God in his great mercy has entrusted us with a message to give to the world, to call people out so that they will be able to live with Jesus in heaven for eternity. Why would we be ashamed of that? But guess what? Do you think Babylon's going to like this message? Do you think the king of the north is going to like to hear that it's fallen and that it's become the habitation of devils? They're going to say, how dare you say that we who are the Christian church have become taken over by devils? No way. We are the, we are the church. You guys are giving out hate speech. This is hate speech. We can't tolerate this anymore. These people are intolerable. They're saying that we're satanic. Well, they're the ones that are causing the trouble. And notice what Daniel 11.44 says. What is, how, what is the reaction to papal Rome to this message? Papal Rome, it says, Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Obviously, if you're being described as being a satanic power, you're not going to be very happy. And I believe this describes the final fulfillment of Revelation 12, 17, where it says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Obviously, that took place down through history at the final struggle between the dragon and the remnant takes place in Revelation 12, 17 and Daniel 11, 44. And it just so happens that this dragon who was wroth with the woman in the very next two verses of Revelation, it says, the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority to the beast who is papal Rome, who is the power that goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many at the end of Daniel 11. So Satan and papal Rome are essentially synonymous. Do you think papal Rome likes that? No. Not particularly. Definitely not. That is part of our loud cry message. But notice... In Revelation 18, this loud cry message includes the earth being lightened with its glory. This glory represents God's character that is shining forth through the lives of God's remnant who are giving the message of Christ's righteousness, which includes sanctification loudly and clearly to the world. As some Seventh-day Adventists, as we read the quote, who were not sanctified by obedience to the truth, depart from the faith. Those who have been sanctified by obedience to the truth reflect and reproduce Christ's character so that the earth is lightened with God's glory. And notice what Ellen White says about this message. She says in Testimonies, Volume 6, page 19, the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Did you get that? The righteousness of Christ is the glory of God that closes the work of the third angel. And the righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of Christ. It's not merely a legal declaration that covers a life that's still sinning. It's the righteousness of Christ demonstrated in verity through the lives of God's people. And that's why it has power to lighten the earth with its glory. We're never going to lighten the earth with the glory of the gospel of God if we have a powerless message that reflects weak, sinful, frail humanity. Amen. That's not going to demonstrate Christ's character of the world. The only thing that will, will be a complete package of the righteousness of Christ. And Ellen White says, this message of Christ's righteousness, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. And then she has a few 
things to say about how Babylon has fallen. Notice this. Last day events, page 198. When do her sins reach into heaven? When the law of God is finally made void by legislation. So as you look at Daniel 11, and as the king of the north has entered into the glorious land, and as the loud cry goes out, the loud cry says, Babylon's sins have reached into heaven, which means Babylon has made void the law of God through legislation, through the Sunday law. So clearly, we, at this point in Daniel 11, we are in the fulfillment of the Sunday law taking place. And then she talks about a terrible condition of the religious world when Babylon falls. I'm going to pass on with that quote. Now, this is where we're going to get into how the loud cry gains power. Notice this quote, Great Controversy, page 605. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth especially controverted. While the, observance, while the observance of the false Sabbath in compliance with the law of the state, contrary to the fourth commandment, will be an avowal of allegiance to a power that is in opposition to God. The keeping of the true Sabbath in obedience to God's law is an evidence of loyalty to the Creator. While one class, by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers, receive the mark of the beast, the other, choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority, receive the seal of God. And this again is he here is why it's so important to understand righteousness by faith, justification, and sanctification. Because the Sabbath is the seal of God, and the Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification. And as I said earlier, in desire of Ages, page 283, Ellen White says, in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men must themselves be holy. So you know what that means? If you're coming to church on Sabbath and you're thinking about what happened in the playoffs on Friday night and you can't wait until sundown to find out if your team won the game, you're not really keeping the Sabbath holy. If you're thinking about your next set of exams and what you need to do and you're setting up in your mind, this is, this is the outline I'm going to follow so that when sundown comes, this is the, what I'm going to do to study for my exams. That shows that Christ is not at the heart of your life. You're just Saturday keeping, keeping a day just because, but you're not entering into the experience of holiness. Whereas if you have the experience of a sanctification all week long, when Sabbath comes, you're like, praise the Lord, the cares of this life, the business of this world, I don't even have to think about it. I can have holy communion with Christ. You know, one thing my wife and I have been doing the last few weeks, we have been using Sabbath afternoon to study the last day events and what's coming on the world. You know, instead of taking a nap all afternoon and just sitting around or whatever, we're using that time to study our Bibles to see what is coming to this world. And that is what we should be doing on our Sabbaths or doing outreach or whatever. Continuing on, same quote, Ellen White says, Heretofore, those who have presented the truth of the third angel's message have often been regarded as mere alarmists. Their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently declared that this land could never become other than what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But continuing on, she says, but as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, the event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching and the third message will produce an effect it could not have had before. So when the Sunday law starts to be agitated, the third angel's message is going to gain power. So don't let someone tell you that the loud cry began on 9-11 because planes flew into a, a building. That's not the, the, the initiation of the loud cry. What gives force to the loud cry is the initiation of the agitation of the Sunday law question. And as this loud cry goes out, Ellen White says, the great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. And you know, again, I want to be part of that work. I want to be a servant of God, hastening from place to place to proclaim this message. Now, I mentioned that 9-11 thing. You know, 
Satan always brings in a counterfeit to try to blunt the force of the truth. So when you have the true loud cry, which is the message of Christ and his righteousness and the Sabbath as the seal of God, Satan is going to work through people to bring in a message that will confuse people. Some of you have probably heard that people are teaching that the loud cry began on 9-11 and that this was the beginning of the third woe in history of Revelation 11, which is totally foolishness. If you read Revelation 11, the third woe it works along in tandem with the seventh trumpet and culminates in the outpouring of the last seven last plagues. So 9-11 is not part of that. There are people that say Islam is part of the tidings of the East because Islam was from the East. How can you say that the tidings from the East are the loud cry of Revelation 18 and also a satanic power? That's confusing people. Then there are people who say we have discovered this prophecy that has been disregarded and forgotten, the 2520. And if you look at Daniel chapter 5, when it says meeny, meeny, tickle you farce, and you add it all up in shekels, and it's actually 2520, and that shows that the 2520 is just as Daniel 5 proclaimed that Babylon has fallen. It was symbolic of how the 2520 will be the loud cry at the end of time. Please don't get into that kind of stuff. Amen. <laughs> this is confusing our people as the loud cry is about to go forward. And in fact, Ellen White says in Great Controversy 351, and even better yet in Volume 7 of the Bible Commentary 971, that the 2300-day prophecy is the longest and last prophetic time period. So if it's the longest, guess what just got ruled out as a legitimate time prophecy? The 2520. So please don't get confused by all that foolishness. I think those people are well-meaning, but it's foolishness. And there are people who claim that feast-keeping is part of the seal of God, that the, fee the ceremonial Sabbaths are on par with the Seventh-day Sabbath, so you have to keep those as well to receive the seal of God. Well, you know what Ellen White says about this? She says, God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. Of your own self shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It is Satan's object now to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of Scripture. And you say, oh, but they really got into Daniel 11, and they were even quoting the spirit of prophecy. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of Scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. And notice this. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. So some of these people don't realize that they're actually fulfilling prophecy in the wrong way. And you know, Ellen White also said that the third angel's message stands on its own and doesn't need time. So if you hear people saying, hey, the Sunday law is coming in October of this year, don't go hear that. That is also doing the same thing um, of bringing in a false loud cry. When you see people doing this, this is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. And you know what? That does excite me because I see these false loud cries now going out, which tells me that we could be very near, I don't know how soon, but we could be very near the outpouring of the latter rain so that the real loud cry will go out to the world and the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. Do you want to be part of that work? Amen. Amen. And you know what happens when the loud cry goes out? Persecution revives. And you know, Justin McNeilis, the GYC president, read that quote from Great Controversy, page 48, that when the church revolves, re, returns to its apostolic purity, persecution will come back. And so as the loud cry goes out, it says that papal Rome will go forth with great fury to utterly destroy and make away many. And here you see again history being repeated just as the saints were persecuted for the 1,260 years. And this persecution culminates in the final church-state union in verse 45 when it says, 
He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. And this is where I believe the King James mistranslated one word, where it says, in the glorious holy mountain. The New King James better translates that, and the glorious holy mountain. So it's between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. It's not in the glorious holy mountain. It's between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So what are we talking about? The seas, if you look at the map, you have the Mediterranean Sea to the west, you have the Dead Sea to the east, and then way up north is the Sea of Galilee. And the glorious holy mountain is in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which is in the green area there in the kingdom of Judah. So this tabernacle of the palace of the king of the north is planted between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Now we're talking about spiritual things here though. What does sea represent in Bible prophecy? It represents people. And the glorious holy mountain represents the remnant church. We studied that. So as we come down to the very end of time, the king of the north plants the tabernacle of his palace between the whole world and a small little remnant. And a tabernacle is symbolic of a religious place of worship. A palace is symbolic of the king's political seat of authority and here you have the final union of church and state the final culmination of the abomination of desolation in which a death decree is declared and the remnant is separated out from the rest of the whole world by this death decree that papal rome declares as he goes out to destroy and make away many Notice what Ellen White says about this. She says, Wonderful events are soon to open before the world. The end of all things is at hand. The time of trouble is about to come upon the people of God. Then it is that the decree will go forth, forbidding those who keep the Sabbath of the Lord to buy or sell, and threatening them with punishment and even death if they do not observe the first day of the week as the Sabbath. And notice what happens. This is the title of our presentation. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And I'll stop right there. Remember what we talked about in our last presentation? What happens when Michael shows up? It represents victory in the great controversy. In Daniel 10, 13, Gabriel was struggling with Lucifer over the mind of Cyrus, and then Michael shows up and the conflict is settled. In Jude verse 9, Christ and Satan were contending over the body of Satan, but Michael as Christ defeats Satan and resurrects Moses. In Revelation chapter 12, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and Michael prevails. Here in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, as the dragon who gives his power seat and authority to papal Rome now goes out to destroy God's remnant, he set up a death decree and has put the whole, pitted the whole world, represented as seas, against the glorious holy mountain as God's remnant. And as it seemingly looks that all is lost for God's people, Michael shows up again and he stands up and he stands up for the children of thy people now what is the significance of Michael standing up if you look at Acts chapter 7 verse 55 when Stephen was being stoned and as the probation of the Jewish nation was closing Stephen looks up into heaven and sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God and this clearly refers to the close of probation in earth's history. As the death decree is made by papal Rome, Michael stands up and probation closes. Now, if you study scripture, Michael stands up from a seated position. Where has he been in heaven? He's been in... The, in the sanctuary in heaven, first in the holy place, and then in 1844, the most holy place. And if you look at the book of Hebrews specifically, it says he is seated at the right hand of God. Now, one of the reasons Michael stands up is because of what papal Rome has done to God's people. 
by declaring a death decree. But I want to show you something very fascinating from the book of Hebrews, which shows what has happened in the lives of God's people to cause Michael to stand up. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Here in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. And Hebrews 8, verse 6 shows us that he is the mediator of a better covenant. And what is he doing as the mediator of the better covenant? Verses 9 through 12 tell us that he is working on writing his law in our hearts and minds. And he will remember our sins and iniquities no more, which describes the blotting out of sins. So what's going to happen when Jesus finishes his work as high priest, when he is doing the work of the new covenant of writing his law into our hearts and minds and blotting out our sins? Well, guess what? He will have a commandment-keeping people because his law is in their hearts and minds. Does that make sense? So Jesus, as our high priest in heaven, at the right hand of God, is working to develop a commandment-keeping people who have a law, his law, a transcript of his character in their hearts and minds. But you know, that's not the only thing he's doing at the right hand of God. Did you know that Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 describes him as the author and finisher of our faith? seated at the right hand of God. Notice what it says. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only is Jesus our high priest at the right hand of the throne of God, he is the author and finisher of our faith, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is Jesus doing as, our, as the author and finisher of our faith? He's trying to help us run the race of faith in this life. And what does this race require? Verse 1 tells us it requires patience, in addition to laying aside every weight and the sin in our lives. And as we run this race, we must look to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, which means that if he's the author and finisher of our faith, he is going to help us begin this race, and he's going to help us continue through life to get to the finish line. Now, if we are to run this race, we see that Jesus is our example, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here is what is very fascinating to me. You know what Jesus says as he closes his message to Laodicea? He says, To him who overcomes... Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne? What does it require to overcome? It requires faith. 1 John 5 says, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So if we are going to overcome as Jesus overcame, what kind of faith do we need? We need the faith of Jesus. That's the message to Laodicea. So guess what happens when Jesus helps us to finish the race? He helps us to run with patience. He helps us to finish the race and overcome as he did. We exercise faith, the faith of Jesus. So when Christ finishes this work as as author and finisher of our faith, he will have people with patience and the faith of Jesus. So what's Jesus doing seated at the right hand of the throne of God? He's our high priest working to write his law into our hearts and minds so that he will have a commandment-keeping people. He's working as the author and finisher of our faith so that he will have a group of people with patience and the faith of Jesus. Have you ever seen that group of people described in in the Bible somewhere? That's Revelation 14, 12, where it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So do you know what happened in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1? Michael has 
stood up for the final time in the great controversy because the final victory in the great controversy has been won. His work at the right hand of God has been finished. He finally has his 144,000 who have patience, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And that is the work that he has been doing since 1844. He has been working to develop this group of people. And you know what? Amen. You are the people that he is working on right now. Amen. It is God's design that you would be among the generation of people that will live to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. Amen. God has made every provision possible for you to have patience through the trials of life, for you to, to keep all the commandments of God, not in name only. Oh, I go to church on Sabbath, but I go out and eat at a restaurant as soon as church is over. Oh, uh, I have faith. I believe that Jesus saves me and my sins. That's not the message for our time. That's right. The message for our time is here is a group of people who have patience through the trials of life, who really are a demonstration of God's commandments, a transcript of his character, who really have the faith of Jesus. And Jesus looks down from heaven as the final crisis unfolds and he sees, here are my people who are fearlessly giving this loud cry message in the face of opposition and persecution and death decrees. And they are facing death, but they have been faithful and they perfectly represent my character to the world. Okay world do you have any questions now I'm standing up the great controversy is over it's time for me to come back and put all this to an end Amen. that is what we are waiting for and if you have any question about what your purpose in life is as a Seventh-day Adventist it's not to just be an, a nice person who mixes in well with society no your purpose is to be among the people that Michael stands up for at the close of probation. Amen. And when that time comes, then we will see the great time of Jacob's trouble. And I want to just look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, which says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Is your light shining brightly? Are you turning people to righteousness? What is the purpose in your life? Is it to uplift Christ, His righteousness, and the three angels' messages for this time? Or have you assimilated into the Babylon of this era? And we, God's people, God has raised up for the finishing of this work. And I realize I've gone a couple of minutes over. I just have a couple of quotes to finish here. Notice this. The third angel closes his message thus. Here is the patience of the saints. Do you realize this is the third angel's message? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary. The minds of all who embrace this message are directed to the most holy place. Is that where your mind is directed every day? Is your mind directed to Jesus interceding for you in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? Or do you hardly ever think of what Jesus is doing for you right now? Jesus is standing, making his final intercession for us. And then, volume 8 of the Testimonies, 197. The third angel's message, embracing the messages of the first and second angel's message, is the message for this time. You know, did you realize that our message is not a message of puppets and clowns? Our message is not a message of comfort and ease. Our message is the third angel's message. So what are we doing as a people? Are we preaching the three angels' messages fearlessly? Are we, are we ashamed? This is the message for our time. It's the, we are to raise aloft the banner on which is inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And this is what it's all about right here. Amen. I want to be alive when that day comes. Amen. And I believe that day is coming soon. And I believe God is raising up 
a generation of people who will stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion who are without fault before the throne of God. And that is what God is calling us to be in the last days of earth's history. So as we come to a close of our series on the book of Daniel, I hope you see that we have a prophetic identity. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy. And that drives our mission, which is to proclaim the three angels' messages fearlessly to, fearlessly to the world as God develops his character in our lives so that someday soon Michael will stand for each one of us as the great controversy comes to its close. Those of you who want to be part of that group of people in the last days, which I believe is very soon, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are such a wonderful God. That you sent Jesus to die for us here on this earth. And that you've given us a prophetic roadmap to help us know where we are in earth's history. We see that the final movements are just upon us. That very soon laws could be enacted that will hasten your soon coming. Lord, I pray that each one of us here would surrender everything in our lives to you so that we can be a conduit for you and the character of Christ that will lighten the earth with its glory here in the last days. May we put away whatever sins we have in our lives. May we rightly represent your character and may we boldly go forward from this day forward with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message to a lost and dying world so that Jesus can come soon. And when Michael stands, I pray that we, we will be among those who he will stand for. These are, this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.